0: As campus ministers and interns pour their lives into you, they believe this book, they believe the gospel, they love God and they know him. That does not mean that they are immune from deep disappointments. And sometimes when they're ministering to you, it's all they can do to get the words out of their mouth. Because their heart is up in their throat. And they are hanging on with their fingernails dug into the wood just hoping that they can go on. Pray for them. Don't take them for granted. They care about you. They care about you eternally. But you may not suspect some of the things that are going on in their lives while they minister to you the word of life. We wouldn't have known these things about Moses had God's inspired word not told us in Numbers chapter 20. But I want to direct our attention tonight to Numbers 21. It's a passage that begins with a deadly challenge and a glorious victory and it continues with the all too familiar whining and grumbling and complaining it reveals to us a divine judgment, and it displays to us a glorious salvation. And along the way, it teaches a hugely important lesson about saving faith. So let's look to God in prayer before we read it. Lord, thank you for, these time, for the time that we have had together in your word. Thank you for these students who could have been a hundred other places, but they chose to be here at their own expense to study your word, I pray that you would bless them, bless them with yourself, bless them with your truth, bless them with your grace under the reading and hearing of God's word tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. This is the word of God, hear it, in Numbers 21, we'll read verses 1 to 9. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction." And the Lord obeyed the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. And they devoted them in their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone... He would look at the bronze serpent and live. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. This chapter begins with a great victory at Hormah. It's such a great victory That the name of the place is named destruction. That's what Hormah means. The Canaanite king had captured some of the Israelites. And by God's help, they had won a great victory against those Canaanites. And you might have expected the children of Israel to have been exultantly grateful to God because of that victory, because he heard their prayer, and because of the deliverance that they'd experienced in that contest. But they were not. You see, Israel was having to take the long way around now on the way to Canaan because the Edomites would not allow them to cross through their country. And so they're having to go the long way around through the wilderness. And while they do that, passing through very harsh territory, they grew impatient. And when they did, they grumbled. And you know, this is another, yet another passage in which the Bible Testifies to its own truthfulness. You're not expecting this victory to be followed by grumbling, but that's exactly what happens. And why do I say that that attests to the Bible's own truthfulness? Because that's exactly how I act. The Lord shows His mercy, the Lord pours out His favor. The Lord answers prayer. The Lord helps me in my need. And I can be complaining again in a nanosecond and forget what he's done for me. this This is one of those passages that if you wanted to make up a story about the people of God, this isn't the one you'd make up. You'd only write this down if it happened if it was true. And our own experiences bear witness to the fact that it's true. And I want you to see four things in the passage with me tonight. The first thing I want you to see is Israel's sin. Look at verses 4 and 5 in particular. And the people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up Out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Israel, in their impatience, in their grumbling, dishonors God by complaining against him. They were impatient, that's understandable. But it's inexcusable. They profanely and disrespectfully and irreverently speak against God and Moses. Essentially, they call into question the wisdom of God's plan. Essentially, they accuse God of having a lousy plan. And they doubt his ability to provide for them in the wilderness. And they complain for what he has provided them in the wilderness. And they ungratefully denigrate his provision for them in the wilderness. Now you need to understand, they're in a very, very harsh place. Some of you may have heard of Lawrence of Arabia. A very famous Briton who joined with Arab forces to rebel against the Ottoman Empire at the beginning of the 20th century. Did you know that he traversed this territory with the Arab army that he fought with in the 19 teens and 20s? And he describes this area for us in his journals. This is what he says. It was a place of hopelessness and sadness, deeper than all the other open deserts that we had crossed. And there was something sinister, something actively evil in this snake-devoted Sirhan, proliferant of salt water, barren palms, and bushes which neither serve for grazing nor for firewood. That's where they were. And the people of God understandably were complaining, but not excusably. And they speak against Moses and they speak against God. Have you ever complained against God? You're in a situation. And you can complain against Him. A few months ago, Kathy called me up in her car on the way to South Carolina. It was just after Sunday services. She had gotten a call from her brother in law that on their way to church, they'd been involved in a very serious traffic accident, and her 16 year old niece had died. And his wife, Kathy's sister, was seriously injured and in the hospital. Kathy was on her way. She wanted me to know. We prayed quickly. I called Derek Thomas, who was in Columbia, South Carolina. I asked him if he would go to the hospital and see the family. We prayed for them and prayed for Kathy. And Kathy ministered to her sister as best as she could. Just a month or so ago, I asked Kathy how it was with her sister. And she said, she's angry at God. She can't understand how this could have happened. She's really mad. And she doesn't seem to be getting better. I understand how a person can be there. But it's a dangerous thing to shake your fist at God. And that's what her sister was doing. What a contrast, the day that I was sitting in Blair Batson Hospital with Margaret from Yazoo City, who was holding her two-year-old baby in her arms as he took his last breaths. He'd fallen in the family swimming pool. His dad and older brother had found him a few minutes later. They don't know how long he'd been in there. They airlifted him from Hattiesburg to Jackson, to the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. But he didn't make it. He lingered for two days and died in his mother's arms. When he took his last breath, Margaret looked up at me and she said, "Logan, can we sing the doxology? And as best as we could in that room... Just a few family members and some stunned doctors and nurses. We sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I felt like I was on holy ground to be standing next to a woman like that. How could she trust God in such loss? She hadn't gone through anything any easier than Kathy's sister. Kathy's sister complained against God and Margaret trusted Him. The children of Israel... Complained against God in the wilderness when He'd given them every reason to trust Him. They did not acknowledge His power. They did not appreciate His generosity. They did not recognize His mercy. They did not accept His sovereignty. They did not trust His word. And my friends, that did not make it better for them because this story goes from bad to worse. That's the first thing I want you to see. They dishonored God. They complained against Him. And By the way, I want to make it clear. Over and over, over and over in the wilderness story, God happily says to His people, please bring your complaints to me, but don't complain against me. Bring your heartaches, bring your griefs, bring your complaints to me, but not against me. The Lord knows our circumstances are hard. The Lord knows those circumstances test our faith. The Lord's happy for us to bring our complaints to him, but not to bring them against him. And the children of Israel had brought their complaints against him. They were blaming God for what was going on here. And what happens? You see it in verse 6. The Lord sends a judgment, a judgment of poisonous snakes. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. You know, sometimes we only learn the lessons that we ought to learn in petty trials by facing greater ones. And this trial that the children of Israel are facing in this desolate place has just gotten worse. It's interesting that the ancient king Eshardan speaks of the snakes in this wilderness and Lawrence Arabia as well, who hated snakes, said that the snakes were so They had to carry sticks and move them out in front of them as they walked along and especially be careful at night when they were in this wilderness. And so the complaints of Israel in the midst of their adversity lead not to their relief, not to things getting better, but to a greater adversity. Now the just judgment of God is sent upon them. Some of you may know the hymn, If Thou But Suffer God to Guide Thee. It's a great hymn. It's a great German hymn that was translated into English in the 19th century. It means, if you will but allow God to guide you, if thou but suffer God to guide thee. In one of the stanzas of that hymn, the hymn writer says this, What can these anxious cares avail thee? These never-ceasing moans and sighs. What can it help if thou bewail thee, or each dark moment as it flies? Our cross and trials do but press the heavier for our bitterness. What's the hymn writer saying? The hymn writer is saying this, What good... Can your anxiety and worry do? What good is constant moaning and sighing? What help is it if you simply regret your situation or bemoan every hard thing that comes along? Your crosses and your trials, your hard providences only get heavier if we are just bitter about them. And that's what happened to the children of Israel. The just judgment of God came upon them. And the response of the people of God is to repent. It's the first right thing they've done. Look at verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. The response of the people to this just judgment of God is repentance and prayer. They come to Moses and they say, We have sinned. They acknowledge that they're the reason for the judgment. And then they say, Pray to the Lord. Now you may say, why don't you pray to the Lord? Why don't you repent and pray to the Lord? But the very act of asking Moses to pray to them is an acknowledgement that he is their mediator. They've just spoken against him, they've spoken against him wrongly. So coming to him and saying, Will you pray for us, is an acknowledgement that he is God's appointed mediator. That's part of their repentance. And so they repent and they ask Moses to pray and God uses this trial to move them to repentance and to prayer and to bring him back them back into close fellowship with him. P.T. Forsyth, a famous Scottish congregational preacher from the turn of the 20th century, once said this, The joiner, when he glues together two boards, keeps them tightly clamped until the cement sets. So also, with calamities, depressions, and disappointments that crush us, they bring us into closer contact with God. The pressure on us is kept until the soul's union with God is set. Do you know that the Lord uses trials in your life that way? To bring you closer to Him? To make you more than you've ever been before? To equip you for service? To be a blessing? to his people. Have you ever thought of that? In the disappointments and the heartaches that you experience, he is at work. If you're his child, if you love Jesus, if you trust in him, even the trials are part of his plan for sanctifying you and increasing your communion with him. Last week I was introduced to the story of a young Scottish woman named Margaret Matheson Haining, and she grew up in a small village in Dumfrieshire in southwestern Scotland and felt a call to go work amongst the Jewish people in Budapest in Hungary. And there she got caught up in the great conflagration of the Second World War and the takeover of the Nazis and, of course, the persecution of the Jews. And she went through a lot. Let me tell you just a little bit about her story. They lied about her death. The death certificate said that she had died in the hospital, but the sketchy details were suspicious. The cause of death was listed as a chronic infection that led to a fatal and irreversible loss of weight, muscle wastage, fatigue, and death. It sounded like she had been deliberately starved to death. It's possible many were. In fact, a short time before she Died, she had written to a friend asking for apples and fresh fruit and bread, but she probably didn't die of starvation. It's likely that on the 17th of July, 1944, prisoner 79467 found herself among a group of Hungarian Jewish women herded into a gas chamber in Auschwitz. They were not the first, and they would not be the last. From July to September of that year, the tally of Jews liquidated with heartless industrial efficiency amounted to an estimated 1.4 million, among whom it is estimated one in three were Hungarian. Though despised as worthless subhumans by the Nazi system, All who died in that terrible place were special. They all bore the image of God. Each had their own dignity. Everyone was someone's father or mother or husband or wife or uncle or aunt or brother or sister or lover or friend. United in their human dignity and suffering, they were individual in their difference. 47-year-old prisoner 79467 certainly did not look very different. Her soft, dark hair framed a warm, sympathetic, bespectacled face. Not unlike many of the other Jewish women of her age. A few weeks earlier, you might have passed her on a street in Budapest and and except for her piercing blue eyes and her broad Scots accent, you would have thought that she was Jewish, but she wasn't. She was a Scot. So what was it that made this middle-aged Scottish woman leave the security of Scotland, first to go to Hungary and then to this fearful place of death in remote Poland? The short answer is that the Germans sentenced her to death for being a spy. She was working as a matron at a Jewish girl's school in Budapest, and she was denounced by the Gestapo who raided the mission in May. They searched her office in her bedroom. She was given 15 minutes to get ready before being driven away. She was charged on eight separate accounts, including listening to the BBC radio, which the Nazis had made a criminal offense punishable by jail, hard labor, or death. And just as Jesus refused to defend himself before Pilate, so she did not deny the charges, except for the political ones. In any case, it was undeniable that she had worked with the Jews. And of course, the heartless indictment that she had wept when she was sewing the compulsory yellow star of David on the little Jewish girl's clothes were true. From that jail in Budapest, she was transported to a holding camp east of the city. And from there to the extermination camp of Auschwitz. But death did not come easily for her. Even here on the road to heaven, she wrote in one of her last letters, there is a mountain range to climb. Now if anybody had cause to complain, it was that woman. But she gave herself to God, she gave herself to service to those Jewish girls, and she trusted Him to her last breath in that gas chamber. You know, the Lord formed Christ in her in that and brought her exceedingly close to Himself. You know, you can go through trials And you can become bitter or you can go through trials and become exceedingly close to God. And it's my prayer that you'll go through your trials and you'll love God more and you'll be more like him. And then in verses 8 and 9 we see the last thing the merciful provision of God. Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now here is a solution to a predicament for which there is no human expectation or explanation for its effectiveness. You know, it's true that the Egyptians did wear snake amulets supposedly to protect them from snakes. But here's the problem. These people have already been bitten by snakes. They don't need a snake amulet to protect them from snakes. They've already been bitten by snakes. And God says, "Moses put a copper snake up on a pole and tell people to look at it. Surely there was somebody there that day that said, You've got to be kidding that this is, this is we you pray, you prayed and this is the plan. yeah, look at it." In other Hebrew sacrifices, you had to touch the substitute. Symbolizing that substitute was going to take your punishment and you were going to be spared. But here, all God calls the children of Israel to do is look. The whole thing is designed to emphasize the power, the grace, the mercy of God. There's nothing that they do to contribute to their healing. God alone will provide it. All they have to do is look. And when they look, what they see is a picture of the vehicle of God's judgment against them. God had judged them for their sin by the snakes, and now they look on that pole at the vehicle of God's judgment for their sin. But you know, Jesus quotes this passage. You remember where he quotes this passage? He quotes this passage in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. You remember what he says? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But There's a big difference there, isn't there? When the pole with the bronze snake was lifted up, the children of Israel were looking at the vehicle of God's judgment against them. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross and we look at Him, we're not looking at the vehicle Of God's judgment against us. We're looking at God's own Son bear the judgment that we ought to bear. And the Lord Jesus says, Look at me. The Father hasn't put hell on the cross. The Father hasn't put your wicked desires on the cross. The Father hasn't put you on the cross. He's put me on the cross. And I wanted to be here for you. And you look to me because I'm not the means of His judgment against you. I'm the means whereby He spares you from judgment. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. In January of 1850, an English teenager stumbled into a primitive Methodist chapel somewhere in England. And he heard a lay preacher preaching a very boring sermon. It was so boring that the teenager couldn't remember what the sermon was about. But he did remember that that lay preacher kept repeating Isaiah forty two twenty two over and over and over again. Look unto me and be saved. I am God and there is no other. And that verse saved that English teenager. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who became the greatest preacher of his age. And how was he saved? He just looked. It still works. There is life for a look. If you look to Jesus, you can be saved. No matter what you've done. No matter what the consequences of those sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. Look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, In trials, press our souls close to you. In doubt, lift our eyes in faith to Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.